Matthew 26, 36 says, Then cometh Jesus with them unto a place called Gethsemane, and saith unto the disciples, Sit ye here while I go and pray yonder. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and began to be sorrowful and very heavy. Then saith he unto them, My soul is exceeding sorrowful, even unto death. Tarry ye here, and watch with me. And he went a little further, and fell on his face, and prayed, saying, O my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. And he cometh unto his disciples, and findeth them asleep. And saith unto Peter, What? Could ye not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray, that ye enter not into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away again the second time and prayed, saying, O my father, if this cup may not pass away from me, except I drink it, thy will be done. And he came and found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. And he left them and went away again and prayed the third time, saying the same words. Then cometh he to his disciples, and saith unto them, Sleep on now, and take your rest. Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. Behold, he is at hand that doth betray me. And we'll stop there, and let's pray. Father, again, as we turn to your word, and glad for it, we thank you for the message that it has for us, Lord, the message of salvation that is available through Christ's sacrifice on the cross. And Lord, as we're approaching that part of the story here in Matthew, Lord, we just ask that you would help us to, to see the seriousness of the situation that's going on there, Lord, and to see the seriousness that continues in our own lives and the sin that is in our lives and what was required in Jesus' death on the cross for our sin, Lord. And Lord, help us this morning to just to grow closer to you through this. And Lord, I ask for your help as I preach this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. We look at this passage, and I guess a lot of people would focus on the sorrow that Jesus is facing and the, the struggle that he had as he was about to go to be crucified. And of course that's important, but that's not where I'm, my focus is going to be. I want to look at the other aspects of this this morning. Um, and in particular, um, Jesus' prayer. And so we're going to look at that in a couple of different ways. And it opens up In verse 36, saying, Then cometh Jesus with them unto a place called Gethsemane. And he's, Jesus says to the disciples, Sit you ye here while I go and pray yonder. You stay, I'm going to go. We pray together at times, and we did that just a few minutes ago, where we ask for needs, ask if there's prayer requests. We do the same on 
our Bible study night on Thursdays, we, we, we ask for prayer requests and any needs that people have, and we pray for these things, and we pray together for these needs. But I'm sure every one of you here has had prayer requests that you didn't want to announce in front of everybody. There's times when we need to pray just us alone with God and we can lift up whatever that burden is in our life before God alone. And we need that time apart. We're, it's, just, it's not being broadcast to everybody. We're not... Just, we can't have others with us at that moment. It was just there's this intimate time of prayer that we need with God. And that's what I see in Jesus at this moment is he has his disciples there and he sh- he's shared so much with them. But at this moment, this time, he, he needs some time alone. We go to verse 37. It says, and he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be sorrowful and very heavy. He says, Then saith he unto them, My soul is exceeding sorrowful, even unto death. Tarry ye here and watch with me. And so he actually has the twelve, has them stay and continue, and now he takes three of them, a little further, shares a little bit more with those three, and then says, now you guys stay here, and I'm going to go a little further. So we see this separation, but if we look back at Matthew 14, this isn't a unique situation for Jesus. We've seen this as we've gone through the book of Matthew, but in Matthew 14... In verse 22, this is, we have the multitude and Jesus has fed the thousands of people with this little lunch. And we get to verse 22, it says, And straightway Jesus constrained his disciples to get into a ship and go before him unto the other side while he sent the multitudes away. And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up into a mountain apart to pray. And when the evening was come, he was there alone. Jesus, at times, was constantly surrounded by people. And obviously, loved that, and that was his purpose, was to minister to people. And he had the multitudes, and he had the disciples. But there was moments when he sent every one of them away. He sent, this time, he sent the disciples here, get on the boat. <laughs> I'll meet you over there. And then he sends the multitude away and he just goes up, up onto a mountain, somewhere alone to get away and just to spend some time alone in prayer. And that was obviously not the everyday for Jesus, but there were times in his life where he needed that. And I don't know if you've noticed, I pretty much every summer hop in a canoe by myself and take off for a few days because I need that time alone to be refreshed and just spend some time away from all the distractions 
And so I, I look at what Jesus was doing and I see my own need for that similar escape. And we all need that. We all need a time alone that we can just spend that time quiet with God. I want to look back at Matthew 26 and this idea that Jesus, he has the 12 disciples with him. He just had the Last Supper. He just sent Judas away to go and do what he was going to do. He's going to betray him. And so he's gone off to get those that are going to betray Jesus or that are going to arrest Jesus. And he takes the other 11 and they go out to this garden where it was normal for them to go. And we see that when Judas comes to betray him, he knew where to go because they often went there together to pray. And so Jesus goes there. He's got the disciples and he stops stay here. He gets them to stay back. And then takes the three a little further. And he shares more with the three. And I see something in this and then finally he goes off by himself to pray. But there's something in this that we can learn and we need to apply this in our lives. Is this idea of these circles of friends and how close the various groups of people, the various individuals in our lives get to be to the most personal things in our life. And some of us are, do this very naturally. Some people just don't have to give this a thought. We're naturally very good at keeping, well, we call this a setting boundaries, right? We keep people that are not close to us, not close to us. And we don't share deeply personal things with those people. And, but some of us aren't very good at that at all and tend to share way too much personal information with people that have no business knowing that information. And it often comes and hurts us at times. And when sometimes we let people affect us and control us who have no business controlling us and telling us how to live our life and what to do and when to, right? Like we get into these things where there's boundaries that need to get set. And we need to learn how to do that. And Jesus had clearly this kind of relationship. The 12 were close, particularly 11. We've got rid of Judas already. But there's three out of this 11 that got that little bit extra, right? There's a little bit closeness, a little bit more closeness in those three to Jesus than with the other group. And we can be like that And we can have close friends, and then there's the closest friends. And Jen and I have been, for some reason, at many different types of training courses for various things. And one of the ones that came up was this idea of setting boundaries. And one of the ways that they were teaching people, and this is for people that really aren't good with this, people that have no idea how to set boundaries, need kind of some instruction on how to accomplish this. So I don't know where you're at with that, but I'll just 
give you a, a quick rundown of this process. And what we need to do is start off with, you make a list of the characteristics of a good friend. And you can come up with your own. You can go online and search for those things. You could go to your Bible. You could go to like 1 Corinthians 13, for instance, which would give you a, a pretty good basis of what to look for in somebody in a close friend. And we could come up with a list like this. I've got 10 things. Characteristics of a good friend. Somebody that loves you. Someone that's dependable. Someone that will share your burdens. Someone that's humble. Forgiving. We need someone forgiving because we often hurt the people that are close to us. Someone that's willing to sacrifice for you. Someone that's peaceful and patient with you. Someone who is not envious or proud. As in, when something good happens to you, they celebrate with you instead of wishing that could happen to them. <laughs> right? They can just be glad for you in your, the good things that happen to you. Someone who is not envious. How about somebody that's a positive influence? Somebody that lifts you and pushes you to be better. And somebody that's willing to rebuke you. Someone that will actually tell you when you're doing something wrong or stupid. That's an important characteristic in a friend. And real friends will do that. Now, if we get this list of characteristics, we could evaluate how good a friend is and we can rate them on this. And you could rate them from 1 to 10 if you wanted. And I got 10 things, so we could rate them 1 to 10 and get a score out of 100. If we did that with each individual person in my life, you know what most of them would rate on that? Would somewhere be below that 50%. <laughs> but there's a few people, a few friends, that would be up 70, 80, 90% in that. That they match all of these things. Like I can, as I'm reading the list, I can think of a, an individual that comes to mind, and it's the same individual that fits that characteristic every time I go through this list, right? It's like, okay, that's that's the friend. That's the friend that scores high. And so when I look at that, I learn to I can set it's like a target. I'm in the center of that target. And the person that scores really high gets to be close to the center of that target. As in, I get to share personal things. Problems in my life. Sin in my life. Joy. The little things, like personal stuff. And they, they come and help when I need help. And I go to them when they need help. Right? We have that close relationship. We do things together. And life takes place together. But there's people that score really low there. That have no business knowing what's going on in my personal life. Right? That might be your coworkers. It might be other people in the church that, yeah, we shake hands with and we have a a nice conversation with, and how's your car running this morning? And, <laughs> yeah, the toilet's plugged and the furnace isn't working. And you're right, like we just have these general conversations. It's no big deal, nothing too personal. 
But we don't share those close things. And so we, can, we need to learn. And Jesus exemplified this. We need to set limits. And there's three basic areas that we set those limits. It's in our time. If someone's not close to us, why do we give up our time to do whatever they're asking me to do? Right? Some of us are very poor at setting limits on our time and limiting how much of that we give to, to various people. And it's, it's good to be generous with our time. And we do that, hopefully, as a Christian, to we give of our time, but there comes a point where people are just taking advantage of us. And we become resentful of being taken advantage of. And so we need to learn that it's okay to tell people that, I'm sorry, I don't have time for that. We just simply say no when someone's asking us for our time. I'll give you just... I'll use John, he's not even here. But he shared an example of that the other day, we're just talking, and, and it was somebody in his life that liked to talk and wanted his time just to share and just to, to tell him all of his problems. And one day he's out walking with his daughters, and that person showed up and wanted his time. And he had to tell him, no, I'm with my family right now. I'm with my daughters. I don't have time to spend with you today. And he, had, he said, no, the guy went away disappointed. But you know what? The guy understood in the end, and he made time another when he actually had the time available. And he had the it was no big deal. Sometimes we think it's going to be this big deal that we said no to somebody just because they want some of our time. And well, it's, it's not. If, if it's a big deal to them that you actually have a life of your own and don't always have time for them, maybe that person needs to get pushed a little bit further outside of your, your circle of trust. Same thing with our emotions and with our body, right? Physically, sometimes people are too close in those things, and we let people control our emotions and our thoughts, and we need to set some limits on how much of that control people have over us. So I just see that in what Jesus is doing here. He's got this close circle of friends that he shares a little bit more with. He gives a little bit more of his time to them. A little bit more of his emotions get expressed to them. And so we need to be thoughtful of who those people are that we give that time and emotion to. I don't want to dwell on that any more than I already have. That was maybe too much already. <laughs> but, but it's important, and we need to understand these things. We're going to look at the rest of this, and it's already started. But verse 39 says, He went a little further, and he fell on his face and prayed, saying, O oh my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. I'm going to look at the prayer. And if we go back to Matthew chapter 6, we have what we call the Lord's Prayer. 
And Jesus gives some instruction on prayer, just on how we ought to pray. Not so much what we ought to pray, but how we ought to pray. And there's some, some very interesting things here. And when we compare what Jesus does in Matthew 26 compared to what he said to do in Matthew 6, there's a, there's a lot. He's, he's living what he taught. And it's not a script, <laughs> right? It's not a follow these instructions in order. It's just a, here's some guidelines of how to come to God. So we get to Matthew chapter 6, verse 5. He starts off, says, And when thou prayest, thou shalt not be as the hypocrites are, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and in the corners of the streets, that they may be seen of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But thou, when thou prayest, enter into thy closet, and when thou hast shut thy door, pray to, the father, to thy father which is in secret. And thy father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. But when ye pray, use not vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think they shall be heard for their much speaking. Be not ye therefore like unto them, for your father knoweth what things ye have need of before ye ask him. After this manner, therefore, pray ye. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Now we have this tendency, not so much in this church, but I know if you've ever been to any Anglican or <laughs> Methodist or Lutheran or Catholic or many, many, many churches every week will quote just the part of this that says our Father which art in heaven and blah, 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 and we just say these things. And we're doing exactly what Jesus says not to do, using vain repetition. <laughs> we're just saying the words, and it means nothing, right? Well, there was a lot of instruction. There's a lot more to this instruction on prayer prior, leading up, between verse 5, leading up to verse 9, when the actual words of the prayer that we quote are started. <laughs> There's a lot of instruction, and... We actually see that Jesus is living out that instruction in his own prayer life. He says, don't be, don't be like the hypocrites, standing, praying, and we've seen examples of that as we go through different passages, and he says, don't be like that. When you pray, when you've got a real burden in your heart, you don't just broadcast it to everybody. You go quietly into your closet, somewhere alone with just you and God, and you pray. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing on this mountain at this moment 
with the disciples there, and he, he takes them and he stops them, and he goes aside and carries on by himself for that prayer. He's, he's doing, he's living exactly what he gave the instructions on what to do when you went to go pray. He says, don't be like the hypocrites and stand proclaiming your stuff loudly. Just go quietly before God. In verse 39, so if, you, if, you, if you're following, I'm going to flip between the two passages here, but in verse 39 of Matthew 26, he says, And he went a little further and fell on his face and prayed, saying, O my Father, if it be possible that this cup pass from me, nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. In Matthew 6, Verse 9, the first words is our Father, which art in heaven. We're just like, we need to address God directly. And the fact that we can do that is incredible, isn't it? But that's exactly what Jesus said that we can do. We can speak directly to God. We don't speak through some saint somewhere, <laughs> some other person. I don't have to go to the priest or, or, or anyone to reach God. I can just, where I am, in my own closet at home, in my car driving to work, wherever I am, I can go before God. I'll lift up my voice and he's hearing me as I speak to him. So Jesus starts with separating himself. Then he addresses the Father of who he's praying to. And he presents his burden. We look at verse 8 in Matthew 6. He says, Be ye not therefore like unto them, but, sorry, for your Father knoweth what things you have need of before you ask him. Now, we recognize God knows our problems, right? And I say it every week when I pray publicly here, that God knows our hearts, knows our, our needs, and knows the details far beyond what is shared publicly here. But it says before you ask him. As in the the thought is, is that you're going to ask him. <laughs> if we don't ask, you know, God, God's so good that he does answer things that we don't even ask for. God provides in so many ways that we haven't even spoken. But he wants us to ask. <laughs> he wants us to present our needs. And so Jesus does that when he prays and he's presenting the burden that's on his heart, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. He's like, he puts the burden before God of what his need is, the thing that's bringing him there at that moment. It's okay to do that. Verse 10 
chapter 6. It says, Thy kingdom come, and thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Back in Matthew 26, he says, Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou will. He's putting it in God's hands. He's putting the outcome. He says, this is my burden. This is the thing I want. But I'm willing to let you do whatever you want with that thing. Jesus didn't want... He's a man in the flesh, like us. And knowing he's about to be tortured to death, and not only tortured to death by people, but having the burden of all of humanity's sin put on him and the rejection and judgment of God put it on him at the same time. There's a burden that no person can bear. And he didn't want that. That wasn't an easy thing to walk into. And so he asked, like, if, I, if there's another way, can you make the other way happen instead of this? But he's like, but not what I want, what you want. If, if this is the only way, if this is what I have to go through, I'm willing to trust you in that. Are you willing to trust God <laughs> with the terrible things in life? The things that we're going through that we don't want to go through? Are you willing to let God's will be done in that? Instead of just demanding that he fix the problem? <laughs> We're supposed to put it into God's hand. We put, present your want. Present how you think you'd like this thing to go, but don't forget to let God have his way. Put the things that we need into God's hands. Let his will be done. We continue in Matthew 26. Verse 40, he says, he comes to his disciples and he finds them asleep and saith unto Peter, what, could you not watch with me one hour? And in verse 41, he says, watch and pray that you enter not into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And so we get in chapter 6, verse 13, is lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And this is what he's telling the disciples to start praying. He sees their need, and their need at this moment, and we, we looked at Peter last week, and the, the trouble that he had here, right? He was tempted, and he, he did fail. He denied Christ because of the pressure that was on him. He couldn't handle it. And Jesus knows that was about to happen. And he says, pray that you be not tempted. That's the need. And that was part of that Lord's prayer. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Jesus is going through every detail of what he gave in the Lord's prayer, in that instruction in chapter 6. He's going through every detail of it here in some way or another, in actual practice, demonstrating to us how this is done. And it's not a, a quoting of the words. It's a applying 
the instruction to our circumstance. And that's how we're to look at this prayer. It's like, it's, it's just guiding us in how we can approach God with these needs. There's an interesting part of it that kind of stuck out to me. Verse 12 in chapter 6 says, And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Forgive us. You go through Matthew 26 and this entire process and any of the Gospels that shows what was done and said on the in Gethsemane at this moment, there's not one time where forgiveness and sin is even mentioned. And that's interesting. Because the whole thing about this is that Jesus is preparing to become the sacrifice for sin. That's the whole issue, is sin and forgiveness. And he's about to become the method by which God is able to forgive. That's the entire content of his burden and his prayer is that. I want to look at something. and I just saw this this week and it really, really stood out to me. Go way back to the book of Ezra. The book of Ezra is just a story of after Israel has gone into captivity and they've been there for their 70 years and now God has some people who are turning their hearts back to him and he starts to bless that. He's got this remnant and he's going to restore them back to the land. And so he puts in the heart of these men to rebuild the temple. And they get permission from their captors to go and do that. And they go and they build this temple. We get to Ezra chapter 9, though. I'm going to start reading. I don't know how far. You almost need to read the whole chapter. We'll see here. It says, Now when these things were done, the princes came to me saying, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the people of the lands, doing according to their abominations, even of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, and the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken of their daughters for themselves and for their sons. So that the holy seed have mingled themselves with the people of those lands. Yea, the hand of the princes and the rulers hath been chief in this trespass. And so we see the hearts are being changed and they're drawing back to God. And they're rebuilding the temple. And as they're reading the scriptures, they get to the point of like this thing that everyone's doing is something we were told not to do. And that was the whole point, 
reason, like the basis of the judgment and the captivity in the first place, was that they were doing these things. And now that they're aware of this and they're concerned about it, they come and they present the problem. And Ezra is here and he says, When I heard this thing, I rent my garment and my mantle, and I plucked off the hair of my head and of my beard, and I sat down astonied. Then were assembled unto me every one that trembled at the words of the God of Israel because of the transgression of those that had been carried away, and I sat astonied until the evening sacrifice. The whole crowd assembled. It says that, that, that they trembled at the words of the God of Israel because of the transgression of the people. They're taking the sin seriously now. Verse 5 says, And at the evening sacrifice, I rose up from my heaviness, and having rent my garment and mantle, and I fell on my knees and spread out my hands unto the Lord my God and said, O oh my God, I am ashamed and blushed to lift up my face to thee, my God. For our iniquities are increased over our head and our trespasses grown up unto the heavens. Do you see how serious he took this? It says, I am ashamed and I blush to lift up my face to thee, my God. Do you take your sin that seriously? Are you ashamed to lift up your face before God when you go to prayer because of your sin? They were told not to mingle with the, not to intermarry with the people of the land because they're going to cause us to sin. And that's exactly what they did. And he's looking at all this situation and he just, he's ashamed. It's not even him that did it. And yet he's ashamed. He says, I blush. I, I'm ashamed to lift up my face before God. He's on his knees, his hands spread on the floor, his face against the ground. For our iniquities are increased over our head. It's like we deserve everything we've ever gotten. And that, if that's you and I, it's like I deserve everything that happened to Jesus on that cross. We need to understand the seriousness of sin in God's eyes. And it's not until we see our sin like that, where we're ashamed to lift our face before God, that that sin might actually start to be removed from our lives. When we don't really take it that serious, and we're not ashamed before God of our sin, and we just go day after day asking for forgiveness for the same thing that we did yesterday and the day before that. And we do it again today, and I, I'm sorry, God, I'll try, I'll try to do better. 
You're not taking your sin seriously. You don't see your sin the way that God sees your sin. You don't have this shame before God that I don't even deserve to be able to speak to you through this thing. We need to have shame over our sin. And it's not until we get to that point where we'll be actually willing to remove the sin from our lives. When we take our sin that serious, when you get to that point, that's when you'll have the ability to push that thing away and be so disgusted with it that you, you wouldn't come near touching that thing again. This is what Christ did for us on that cross. Was took care of that, that I can come to God. Full assurance that no matter what I've done and no matter how many times I've done it, no matter how careless I've been in my life, in the sin that I've done, I can still come to him and it's been paid for. The forgiveness is there. It says, forgive us our debts or forgive us our trespasses. Right? It's been done. That was the whole point of him going through this agony was he was about to take care of that for us. He was about to put that burden on himself and that shame. Where Ezra was ashamed and he was blushing for the sin of the people around him. It wasn't even his own sin. Ashamed to lift up his face and that's that that got put onto Christ. No wonder he didn't want to bear that burden. The rest of the chapter is Ezra's prayer to God. And I'll, I won't read it this morning, but I strongly encourage you to read it. We get to verse t- or chapter 10 and verse 1. It says, Now when Ezra had prayed, and when he had confessed, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, there assembled unto him out of Israel, a great congregation of men and women and children. For the people wept very sore. It wasn't just Ezra. The people wept very sore. We, sometimes we talk about revival. Revival needs to happen in churches in our church. And revival comes through this. This was the start of something good. When people took their sin seriously and they were just disgusted with it as what God is and they wept very sore. A great congregation of men and women. They took it so serious and they wanted to fix the problem. We need to want to change. We need to take it serious. We need to be as disgusted with sin as what God is. And that will cause a revival in us and in our church. And when that happens in us and in our church, this started with Ezra and just a few people and a congregation joined in because they started to see what was happening. And it can spread to the community. God can still move in our community.
in a great way. Let's pray.